If uh, you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to talk about the theme of what will your legacy be? Good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? What's my legacy going to be? You know, the legacy is uh, how we're remembered. Maybe uh, if we give people an opportunity to write our tombstone, what are they going to write on our tombstone? Dr. David Jeremiah has uh, traveled around the world, and he has written a book in which he's copied down things from cemeteries. Interesting. Some of them are actually quite funny, quite humorous. Um, I like the one that's found on a tombstone in England. It's a husband and wife buried beside one another, and it says under the wife that she died for want of things. And under the husband, it says, and he he died trying to give them to her. There's one on Boot Hill. It says, here lies less more, shot with a 44. No less, no more. (laughs) And uh, I have a very good friend who was my spiritual father in life, passed away probably about 10 years ago. But on his tombstone, I think it's on the backside, he had these words inscribed. And it says, his name was Don Miller. And it says, if you've never met me, you haven't missed much. But if you've never met my Jesus, you've missed everything. I hope a lot of people read that as they walk through that cemetery. So what's your legacy going to be? What are they going to write about you? Well, this morning we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And I want you to picture this morning that you're that person standing at the fork in the road. And you know, when you come to a fork in the road, you have to make a decision. Which way am I going to go? And, of course, we have the left fork and the right fork. And I want to give you two choices this morning. I want to show you two alternative routes to take in life. And uh, the first one is found in Luke chapter 12. We're going to entitle this Building Barns or Barn Building, Building Bigger Barns. It's the first option that we'll consider. And uh, do we have a picture after that? Yeah, we do. There's what it looks like, Building Bigger Barns. So follow with me as I read from Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, that is the crowd that was assembled, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, let's dissect the text for just a few moments. We begin, first of all, by looking at uh, verse 15, which we call the premise. 
And look at the second half of that verse. Jesus says, For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You are not defined by your material things. That's not who we are. Who we are is down deep in here. And that's the premise with which he begins this parable. And then he begins to to reveal to us through the legacy of this man who was into building bigger barns some errors that he makes in his lifestyle and in his choices. And in verse 17, he makes he, he reveals to us this first error that he makes. And it says that he began, that is, the this man began reasoning to himself, and he says, notice the personal pronouns, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? In the Christian Missionary Alliance, we have what are called seven core values, and uh, you may have seen them somewhere. They're, they're worth reading and worth pondering. But the third core value says these words, everything we have belongs to God, and we are his stewards. Well, this man wasn't living life, uh, as a matter of fact, he wasn't living life as even God was in the picture, as you can see. But he certainly wasn't living life as if all that he had belonged to God. It's mine, he says. And he has a life that's centered totally around himself. Now, lest we simply say, well, that's a non-believer, not a problem for us who are Christ followers, right? But we need to be careful because, you know, there are times in life when we can get a little off track. And we can get into that lifestyle maybe of self-pity, And all of a sudden, we lose our focus on the Lord, like Peter did on the water. And all that we can see is ourself and our circumstances and what's going on. And it becomes all about us. And if that happens, God has to shake us to get us back on focus and back on track. And this man is living a life of, of absorption of self. What shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. And the warning to us is, don't travel that road. If you find yourself getting off onto that track, repent, you know, would be the first thing to do. Turn about and go the other way. Get back on track. So don't live life as if you're the only thing that matters and it all revolves around you because it does not. The second error he makes is found in verse 18. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. His second error is the error of his idea. He doesn't appear to have read the Proverbs, does he? He isn't really relying upon God. He's not following the Lord. He doesn't know about seeking first the kingdom. And it's all about his plans. So he has this, his great plan that he thinks of. This is what I will do. It's like, kind of like the light bulb goes on. Wow, I have this great idea. Have you ever had a great idea? Or have you ever had what you thought was a great idea? Now, I've had a few of those. And my wife, fortunately, is not here this morning to give any testimony <laughs> to some of my great ideas that went down in flames and sometimes cost us money, you know. But I thought it was a great plan, and that's where this guy's at. He comes up with this great plan, and the great plan is 
Because I don't have enough room to store all of the increase, I'll just tear down these barns and I'll build bigger barns, grandiose barns. And there I'll put all of my goods and all of my grain. That's where I'll store it. So his error is that it's just simply his plan. And it's really not God's plan. As a matter of fact, I am convinced this morning if he had been a Christ follower and he would have prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord would not have said to him, build bigger barns. I don't believe God would have said that to him. He would add some other counsel, but he didn't seek the Lord. And then he makes a third error. In verse 19, he says, I will say to my soul. You know, it's kind of sitting back in the easy chair. Just looking over all of this increase, soul, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Just live it up. Well, he really makes two mistakes here. It's, it's, we can summarize it in one word. It's called presumption. He presumes. He first of all presumes that his many goods today will be many goods tomorrow. Any guarantee on that one? Anybody here remember what your portfolio looked like in 2007 and then at the end of 2008, what happened to it? Investments that were in the markets went south. I sit across the table from many people who show me the numbers and say we lost 40, 50% of our assets during those couple years of decline. And so we need to be careful that we presume upon the fact that it's here today and it's going to be here tomorrow. Not necessarily true. His second presumption is his presumption in these words, you have this laid up for many years to come. Many years to come. Can anybody here guarantee me the end of this day? And can I guarantee you the end of this day? I don't think so. On April the 9th, 2008, I went through an experience that, that was a wake-up call from the Lord. And I look at life totally different today than I did on April the 8th, 2009, or 2008. It was a Tuesday evening, and my wife and I drove to Columbus, Ohio. I had had a pacemaker for a number of years, and the next morning I was going to have leads extracted and new leads put in because they had malfunctioned. And so we had a nice dinner in a restaurant, stayed in a motel. We had to be at the, at the OSU Medical Center about six, six o'clock in the morning. And so we got there and, you know, I'm just on cruise control. I've been through this a couple of times with pacemaker changes and I was just cruising. I had a, I had one of the foremost doctors in the world, one of the three most prominent physicians for pacemakers and extractions. This guy was good. And, um, so I was just cruising, you know. As a matter of fact, my plan was this is going to get done Wednesday morning and Thursday morning I go home and Thursday night I'm back in church because I'm doing Financial Peace University for our group and it's our last and we're going to have a big blowout party. So I had it all planned out. But guess what? God had a different plan. My wife was alone and she sat in the, in the waiting room of the cath lab and she heard Code Blue. And she knew I was code blue in the cath lab, and she knew that I was the only one in any of the cath labs that early. So she knew it was me. And she began to pray, and eventually my doctor came out, handed her my wedding ring, 
and said, we've taken him to the emergency operating room upstairs. And he said to my wife, we don't really know if he's going to make it. And if he does make it, we're not sure he's not going to have brain damage because I was bleeding internally. They tore my vein twice. And I was pumping blood into my chest cavity and everything was gone. No blood pressure. I was unconscious. I was awake when it happened. I even said to my doctor, something's wrong. And bang, I was gone. And I came that close. I came to the next morning on a ventilator. And uh, the, the road from that point on was a long, long road to recovery. Uh, six and a half months later, a second open heart surgery because of damage it was done. And, but but here's, here's the, the story. God showed me that I don't have any guarantees. I could have been gone that easily. And I came as close as you can possibly get without departing. But God had a reason, and he sent me back or left me here. But, you know, that changes your perspective on life. And I'm sure some of you are sitting in these pews this morning, and you've been down this road, and you know what I'm talking about. That your life changed after something dramatic. And you don't presume tomorrow any longer. I, I just, I don't, I don't guarantee myself tomorrow. It's in the Lord's hands. He's taught me to number my days. So we need to be very careful that we presume upon the Lord that there's enough and we'll be here for a long, long time. No guarantees. In the, in the work that I do, I do estate planning with people. I've had people sign their wills. I had a gentleman who signed his will and four days later he died. I had people who didn't get to sign their will. They didn't make it. So there's no guarantees, friends. So don't presume upon God. So we watch this man's life and we see all of the errors he makes. And of course, Jesus tells the parable for a reason. He's saying to us, don't follow this lifestyle. Not wise. As a matter of fact, God's response at the end of this commentary on this man's part, can you imagine coming to the end of life and summarizing your life and as you see it and you hear the, a voice from heaven that says, you fool? Wow. Not what you want to hear. Not what you're living for. But that's what he heard. Is there a better way to go? Is there a better option in life? I want to take you to Romans chapter 10. And I want to share with you this morning that I believe there's a much better way. And there's a lot of joy in this life. And ultimately, there will be a lot of fruit as well. Romans chapter 10 and verses 13 through 15. And we're going to call this text the endowing of the evangel. And I think you understand it in just a moment. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul is laying out for us an option. And I believe if Paul were here this morning, he'd say to us, listen, friends, this is the one you want. This is the way to go. What's the premise of the text? It's a promise from God, a great and precious promise, as a matter of fact. Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call, they will be saved. That's God's guarantee. For that one who comes to that moment in life when they realize that they are lost without Christ and in desperation they cry out 
Pray that simple prayer that Peter prayed on the water. Lord, save me. He will save us. I prayed that prayer at the age of 13 when I came to the reality that I was lost without Christ. So that's his premise to all that Paul is going to build upon. I want you to notice with me, see with me that Paul lays out for us four questions. Notice that he's building. He's getting to a climax. And he starts in verse 14. First question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to call? How are people who are lost going to call on someone in whom they have no belief system? If we could take the time this morning, which uh, would be almost an endless task, of trying to discern or to list all of the belief systems in our world. Have you studied world religions or had had some idea of what they are? It's, it's, It's staggering this morning. There are probably thousands of them. There's the atheist who has no belief system, and there's the Hindu and there's the person who follows Shintoism, Confucianism. And of course, one of the fastest growing religions of the day is Islam. And so all around the world, there are people who believe in all kinds of things. And there are pl- people in places that are dark in sin. And people believe in what we call animism. They believe in the spirit world. And they believe there are good spirits and bad spirits. And you have to do certain things to appease the bad spirits. And some of it is quite tragic because it even goes to the degree of sacrificing children to appease the spirits. So people have all kinds of belief systems. And Paul says, well, how are they going to call on him in whom they haven't believed? So there needs to be this opportunity to believe. He builds builds upon it and says, and how are they going to believe in him in whom they have not heard? The world population now exceeds 7 billion people. We're told that probably 2 to 3 billion of those people have never heard the name of Jesus or clearly heard the message of the gospel of salvation. I don't know about you, but that boggles my mind because for 60 years I've been in a church. They took me as a child to to the nursery and my name's on the cradle roll of a little church in Center County, Pennsylvania. And I've been in church almost all of my life, off and on, at least some. And I sit back and I think, how many times have I heard the message of salvation through Jesus alone? I've heard it in church, in Sunday school classes. I've heard it on the radio. I've heard it through television preachers. I've read it in books and pamphlets. And you may be in the same category as I'm in this morning. You've heard it all of your life. Isn't it difficult to believe or understand that some have never even once heard it? I just struggle with that. A great preacher in People's Church in Toronto, Oswald Smith, said that he believed it was almost a sin that we should hear so many times when some have never heard once. And his passion was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. People's Church in Toronto, under his leadership, was the largest missionary-sending church in the world. It compels you. So how are they going to hear? Or how are they going to believe in him in whom they have not heard? Says Paul. And then he asks the third question, and how are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear without the evangel? Well, it's a rhetorical question. They won't. Now, the evangel today comes in many forms. And we're, we're uh, excited about the fact that we have so many avenues that we didn't have at one time. At one time, it was just 
taking someone there bodily or maybe using Christian literature. But today we have the evangel who goes in person and we have the literature and we have the radio and we have the television and now we have the internet and we have all of the different avenues of of the internet. And and many, many people are hearing of Christ that never heard of him before. But Paul says, how are are they going to hear without the evangel? So we need to see that the evangel gets there or the message of the evangel gets there. And then he says, as he reaches the climax in the last question, and how will they preach unless they are sent? How are they going to preach unless they are sent? What does it mean to send? And I'd like to ask you this morning, are you involved in sending? How do you send? Well, it has many facets. One may be that you give of your own in the sense of your children or your grandchildren, or maybe you go as God calls you to go. And of course, the evangel, we're all evangels in one sense of the word. We're evangels to our neighbors and to our co-workers and to our classmates in school and to our family and friends. We're all evangels. But some are the evangels to the ends of the earth who have been sent. And we have a great heritage in the Christian Missionary Alliance. 125 years of Sending. And we have some unbelievable stories and some tremendous fruit. Every three minutes under the ministry of a Christian Missionary Alliance worker, someone is praying to receive Christ. Think of that as we're here this morning. How many have come to faith in Christ? That's exciting. Something to get excited about. And Paul says... And how are they going to hear unless they're sent? So we, could, we can send. Sending also involves praying, intercessory prayer. God wants us to be praying for those who have gone, and they want us to be praying for them. That's the first thing they tell you. That's the most important thing you can do for them. They'll tell you that. And we can also send by giving, stewardship, resources, Are we supporting the work of God to advance the kingdom to the ends of the earth? So many Christians are missing something here. I heard some say, well, don't make me feel guilty about this, or I don't want to be obligated. Well, I accept that I'm obligated. I'm obligated to Jesus Christ because he saved me And he didn't just die for me, he died for many others, and so I need to see that they can hear this as well. But beyond that, beyond an obligation, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be involved in the kingdom of God through giving. And to to give that we might advance the kingdom to the ends of the earth and bring many people to Christ. When we read about the man who built bigger barns, God's commentary, God's response at the end was, you fool. Notice God's response here. How beautiful. God says, this is what is beautiful to me. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. God glories in this. God says, if you want to do something beautiful, this is it. This is what really counts. Let me share a story with you. His name was Ed Thompson. 
Ed came to faith in Christ as a teenager, and God's call was upon his life to be a missionary. This was in the 1940s. And so he committed his life to go and be trained. As he graduated from high school, he boarded a train to Nyack, New York, to the Missionary Training Institute of the Christian Missionary Alliance, so that he could be, be equipped to be a missionary overseas. And while he was there, he met a beautiful young lady by the name of Ruth Stebbins, and they fell in love. And on their very graduation day, they were married. They went out and served a church in the Alliance for their home service commitment, and then they accepted the call of God to the country of Cambodia in the 1950s. They went and they labored faithfully for 14 years among the Khmer people. The Khmer people were tremendously resistant to the gospel, and the fruit of their labor was minimal. But they served God anyway. They didn't quit. They raised a family in Cambodia. The kids eventually went off to the missionary schools and were educated. Near the end of their term there, their third term, they heard of a people group in the mountains, the highlands of Cambodia, called the Manong people. And there began to be some openings with the Manong people, and they seemed to have a responsiveness to the gospel through some of our other missionaries. And the Thompsons didn't know the language, but they decided that when they came back after their one year of furlough, they would come back with the intent of learning the Manong language and taking the gospel to the Manong people. But while they were home on furlough, the country of Cambodia was closed by Prince Sihanouk. He threw out all missionaries of every denomination, all Christian workers. Tremendous persecution began to take place, and many believers died for their faith. Well, at the end of that year, 1967, came time for them to go somewhere, and they appealed to the Alliance to send them to the country of Vietnam. Some of you are about maybe close to my age, and you remember, you might have been right in high school or out of high school, and you remember that Vietnam in 1967 was not the place you wanted to go on vacation, right? Or even go, period. But they asked the Alliance to send them there in the midst of a war. And so they went with the intent that they would begin to learn the Manong language. And so they settled in the city of Bam Mai Tuat, South Vietnam, began to learn the language. And as they were studying, the year passed and turned into 1968. At the end of January, there is a celebration in Vietnam. It's the big blowout. It's called the New Year. It's, it's termed the Tet Celebration. Some of you remember that word, the Tet. There was a great truce declared between the North Viet Cong, the South Vietnamese, the Americans, and the other forces that were there, that there would be a three-day truce during the, the Tet. But the, South, or the North Viet Cong broke the truce immediately. Now, the very first day, they attacked South Vietnam. And unfortunately for our missionaries, their compound sat right in front of a South Vietnamese military base in Bami Tuat. They were in direct line of fire, machine gun, mortars, grenades, everything. And so some of them ran for cover in the back of their yard. There was a, uh, a makeshift bunker. It actually had been a garbage pit at one time. They turned it into a bunker, and Ed and Ruth Thompson ran into that bunker and one of their neighbors, Ruth Wilding, who was one of our missionaries, ran also for cover. And just as she reached it, she was shot down with machine gun fire and fell into that bunker. 
There were other missionaries in there to be sure that no one survived a Viet Cong soldier tossed a grenade into that bunker. And Ed and Ruth were killed, gave their lives. They were buried in Vietnam. Fortunately, their children were out of country at the time. Things began to deteriorate. Some of our missionaries were taken captive. Some were missing. One of the last Alliance missionaries to be evacuated from South Vietnam in 1975 was Ruth Stebbins Thompson's brother, Tom Stebbins. Tom was the field director. You may remember the helicopters lifting off of the embassy, American embassy in Saigon. The next to last helicopter, Tom was hanging out of that helicopter to get out of there. And our missionaries were gone, and the question was, well, what's going to happen to the church? Tremendous persecution came as South Vietnam fell to the North Vietnamese communist. Many of our pastors were imprisoned, some of them beaten, some of them were killed. And we didn't know what would happen to the church. But two years ago, in 2011, the Christian Missionary Alliance celebrated its 100th anniversary of entrance into Vietnam, taking the gospel. It was a three-day celebration. Our president, our vice president of international ministries, many of our former Alliance missionaries went back to Vietnam. And the keynote speaker of those three days was Tom Stebbins, still very fluent in Vietnamese, close to the age of 80 now, or probably is 80. And Tom spoke. What did they find? Well, they found that in 1975, when they left Vietnam, there were about 60,000 believers in the country. But in 2011, the Tin Lan Church of the Christian and Missionary Alliance had grown to 1.2 million people by God's grace. It is the largest alliance church in the world. As a matter of fact, one of every four believers in the alliance is Vietnamese. The child had exceeded the parent. The church in the U.S. today is about 400,000. In Vietnam, it's 1.2 million. Only God can do that. They also found out that the church among the Manong people in the highlands of Vietnam and Cambodia, when they left, there were only a few hundred believers. They found that that church now has grown above 40,000 people. Someone asked one of the church leaders, how could this have happened? What's your explanation? They said, when the Thompsons were martyred, we heard that they were trying to bring this message, this news to us. And we decided that anything that someone believed was worth dying for had to be the truth. And so we sought it out and we found the message and we embraced Christ. Some would think that the Thompsons' lives were simply lost, but no, what a legacy they left behind. And their legacy goes on to their children. David Thompson, some of you may know David, may have heard him speak. A remarkable man. David just uh, finished last year about 35 years at the Bangalore Evangelical Hospital in Gabon, West Africa, a hospital clinic that David founded and oversaw for those 35 years, trained nationals to care for it. In that hospital alone every year, well over a 1,000 people come to faith in Christ because every patient hears the gospel. Three full-time chaplains. God has used that work in a marvelous way. Becky, his wife Becky, Rebecca, 
Her parents were the Mitchells, Archie and Betty Mitchell. Her dad was taken by the Viet Cong in the Tet Offensive, never heard from or seen again. Her mom, of the four parents, is the only one that survived. And today they have a daughter, Rebecca, or not Rebecca, but Rachel, who serves in the country of Gabon as an Alliance missionary, now the third generation. What a legacy Ed and Ruth Thompson have left in the kingdom. But let me just be, kind of play the role of Paul Harvey for a moment. Let me tell you the rest of the story, because I left a few things out. When Ed Thompson was 16 years of age and God's call was upon him, he went home from church and he wanted to tell his unbelieving stepfather about the call of God in his life to be a missionary. His unbelieving stepfather became so irate, he ordered Ed to leave the house and never come back. Ed put all of his belongings into a hat box and he left home. And for the next two years, he lived in the attic of his Sunday school teacher's home. At the end of his senior year in high school, he took two jobs, one in a hospital and one in a steel mill. He worked all summer long to earn enough money to pay for his first year at the Missionary Training Institute, and he boarded the train for Nyack. But on his way there, someone robbed him of all of his money. And when he arrived, he had nothing, but he didn't tell anyone. His day came for registration, and as he stood in the registration line, and remember, we're talking the 1940s, no Pell Grants, no student loans, you pay or you go home. And as he stood in line and he got closer and closer to the registration desk, he had no clue what he was going to do. Two more students between him and the desk, and an official from the college took him by the arm and pulled him aside and said, Ed, someone has left a legacy to the Missionary Training Institute. We're going to give it to you. It's enough to pay for your first year in college. God's faithful. God had a plan for Ed Thompson. But, you know, when I think about that story, I... I don't know who gave the gift. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure anybody in the Alliance today knows who gave the gift. It doesn't really matter. But that person, did they know when they gave this gift the impact that it would leave? There's a lesson for all of us. We don't know the impact of what we give to the Lord. But we know this. God says that he has promised to bless it and to multiply it. To bless it and to multiply it. And someday we'll see the result of that. That's the Thompson story. That's the impact of their lives. And so we come back to the crossroads and we see the two options before us, building bigger barns or endowing the evangel. I hope you're not struggling with which one's the best way to go. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Because you see the one on the left, the barns, someday they're, they're going to burn up collapse, be gone, and it's not going to mean anything. But for those of us who invest in the kingdom, it's a whole different story because God promises us that the kingdom is eternal. He promises us that the souls of people are eternal. And if you want to invest in something this morning that has eternal returns, the kingdom is it. That's the place to invest. Let me read just one verse from Revelation and we close. Revelation 7 and verse 9. Here's the picture in the end. And after these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count. 
from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. The word tongues in the Greek is the word ethnos, from every ethnicity. There's not going to be a nation, a tribe, a group unrepresented in the kingdom because the gospel is going to get to them. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And if you know Jesus today, you're going to be a part of that. There's a beautiful song. The words are very moving to me. When I hear it sung, I often find myself welling up with tears, even just thinking of the words. You know the song, one by one they came. Far as the eye could see, may these words be true of our lives, somehow touched by your generosity. What a day that's going to be when we see them and somehow God is going to say that one, that one, this one, this one, because you gave. Thank you for giving to the Lord, they're going to say. I am a life that was changed. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be involved with. That's what I've given my life to, is the kingdom. And it's going to be a marvelous day when we stand before him.